Oh my goodness, I am so excited to be here with Carolyn Coca, Professor SUNY Old Westbury. Thank you for joining us, Carolyn. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. So you, um, gosh, you have a really interesting background. I'm so interested myself in learning how you went from poli-sci media to, you know, these books on adolescent sexuality into like just blowing us, blowing our minds with your work in comics. Oh, well, I guess the way I think of it is, while it may not really seem like it at first glance, my work about female superheroes is really very similar to my other work about statutory rape laws or age of consent laws and the history of adolescent sexuality because all of those things, in all of those things, I use an interdisciplinary approach to investigate inequalities and stereotypes of gender and sexuality, race, class, age, and disability, and how they came to be and who tends to gain and who loses out uh, because of those inequalities, how it's changed over time and sadly not changed so much over time and how we can do better and we need to do better. Wow. And so, so I see them as all kind of a continuum, but I know at first glance they look very different. And you are still teaching in a poli-sci department, right? Yeah, you- it's, it's interdisciplinary, though. It's an yeah. interdisciplinary department called Politics, Economics, and Law, because we really think all those things go together. And my colleagues are totally supportive of the comics work. It was actually my colleagues who have asked me over the past couple of years why I had not created a comics class yet, a politics of comics class. So they're great. You know, I'm very happy to be there. I'm so glad that there's a, a great space for you to do this work uh, and for the students to um, have this kind of um, access to you. So, yeah, t- speaking of which, can we talk about, you know, feminist waves in comics? Uh, sure. I mean, I guess looking at waves of feminism and backlash to them was kind of how I analyzed how and why um, representations of female superheroes changed from the 1940s to the present. So it just kind of gave it a frame, you know, sort of a political frame. And when you look at it in that way, you kind of see how um, during World War II when comics were sold on newsstands and they had to appeal to a large audience and uh, the U.S. was at war, so women were an integral part of that effort, you have these female characters in comics that are kind of very similar to the way that first wave feminists looked at women, which is to say they were independent and spunky and equally capable, but maybe a little on the morally superior side. So that's Wonder Woman is kind of indicative of that. Then after the war, you have a backlash to that. Women were forced out of men's jobs, including in comics. And um, you have a cult of domesticity and heteronormativity. So by the time you get to the 50s, you have these female superheroes that are produced entirely by white men. And so these female superheroes in the 50s and early 60s are kind of white, upper middle class, non-disabled, slender, attractive in this Anglo-European way. And they fainted and cried a lot. <laughs> a lot of them had girls, girl in their name instead of woman. And they were interested in sewing and cooking and motherhood and romance with men. If there was a woman on a team, there was usually only one woman, so she kind of had to stand in for all women. But when second wave feminism kind of gets rolling in the later 60s and 70s, you still have these all male creators, but some of them, it seems like they did try to incorporate feminist ideas into their books, but it was more like this caricature of feminism. It was like these singular white women who were high achieving and kind of 
bitchy and uh, still interested in fashion and crying over men. But you do have more of that forward push. So in the 70s, for instance, you, you have more diversity among these female superheroes. So like with the X-Men, you have more women of color, but they're kind of stereotypical at the same time. So like Storm is an awesome character, but her weather control kind of exemplifies a trope of Africans being closely tied to nature and earth. And she would lose that control if she got emotional because she's a woman. And, you know, Jubilee loves them all because she's a girl and she has fireworks powers because she's Chinese. Is she a great character? Yeah, but those are stereotypical things. Or Danny Moonstar, she's Cheyenne. So her original powers are sort of about visions and communicating with animals. So qualitatively, you have a lot of ex-women who um, are prominent and females of color with disabilities, some who are queer, but you know, qualitatively great characters, quantitatively, most X teams have still been dominated by white males. And you have other women superheroes of color at this time, but they're often less central to the action. They're kind of weaker in their power sets, also usually more exoticized than the white female characters. So like you have a small number of black female characters with these sort of animalistic powers and clothing like Vixen, Panther, Bumblebee, Ladyhawk, <laughs> and you have some black exploitation inflected ones like Monica Rambeau or Misty Knight. You do finally have some Asian female superheroes, but they're usually martial arts, arts experts with swords who get bested by white male characters with swords. Um, and not many Latinas, as you know, Green Fury, later Firebird and Wildcat and La Bandera. So most of the world's women were just erased through this time. And then in the 80s and 90s, it actually worsens because there's a conservative backlash against those feminist incursions and backlash against civil rights movements in general. It's the same time as the growth in the direct market and the loosening of the comics code. So that's when you get this homogenized fan base, older, more male, more white, heterosexual. So you have um, male creators drawing hyper-muscular male characters and hyper-sexualized female characters. But then <laughs> you again see these inroads, that third wave feminism, which is at least on paper, more intersectional and more inclusive is kind of pushing forward. So you get characters like Barbara Gordon's new alter ego, Oracle, um, which is a pretty nuanced portrayal of a person with disabilities. However, she and other disabled characters tend to have some kind of superpower or prosthesis that counterbalances the disability. Um, like she has a photographic memory and a PhD and Daredevil has a JD and his radar-like vision and Professor X has telepathy. And then if you kind of set those white characters to the side for one second, you see these other characters. Misty Knight has a cybernetic arm, Karma has a prosthetic leg, Cyborg and Forge and Gangbuster and Ali Sanchez have cybernetics and prosthetics too. So it's like you start to see this unfortunate pattern that the, the, the female and male characters of color with disabilities have these physical strength enhancements and the white ones have professional degrees and these super mental abilities, which is a little bit discomforting. Yeah. You don't have, yeah, you don't have a large number of LGBTQ characters really before the last several years other than Mystique from the X-Men. Um, Extrano you've talked about before, <laughs> so there's a lot there, but um, you know from the from the 2000s to the present this third wave feminist sensibility has really grown in mainstream superhero comics and you see more queer characters, more characters with disability, more racially and ethnically diverse ones, a little bit of diversity in body types, not that much. 
it's accelerated because there have been more women behind the scenes, um, more access through digitization and trade paperbacks and conventions and social media. All of this diversifies the fan base and parts of that fan base have, have put forward a pretty vocal backlash to the underrepresentation and stereotyping and lack of diversity and sexualization and sort of poor plot devices. It, it, to the point where it seems like, wow, so much superhero stuff now is written or drawn by women and or people of color, but quantitatively, it's just so small. It's so small. Um, but even though it's so small, there are people out there who are criticizing it, you know, bringing politics into my comics, and I don't want that. And they're not seeing that decades of discrimination and marginalization and exclusion were totally political, just in a way that they were comfortable with. So I, I guess my point is, and I'm sorry this was a long answer, <laughs> but okay. I'm not trying to say that comics reflect real life, but just that comics are an institution in our real lives and they're suffused with politics. And in that institution of comics, we have the same political fights we're having everywhere else. That you know, societal institutions and comics are mutually constitutive and they affect each other in different ways. Um, comics are always political and my looking at them through the lens of waves of feminism is just one way of, of drawing that all out. Wow, thank you, my goodness, uh, what a- That was a lot, of, is that too much, sorry. So beautiful, I loved it, I learned so much in such a short period of time, uh, just like, you know, reading Superwomen, learning so much, and of course, you know, uh, a very worth, worthy of the Eisner, right? Um, uh, uh, you too, you too. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, this, you were just, you've already kind of brought us into this space of intersectional intersectionality and gosh, yeah, there's, you know, sort of good, good uh, representation, not so good and even bad. Um, and for me, you know, I'm finding, and maybe uh, you, we can talk about this a little bit here or later that the less money, the less the kind of white producers, uh, the kind of big, capitalist sort of, you know, um, straight jackets are on the creative expression, the more interesting we can sort of be, right? But Totally, totally. That pad, I completely agree with your assessment of that pattern. Yeah. And it, it was one that I saw when I was writing the Superwomen book as well. But yeah, I think you're right on. I think that the more financial risk there is, the more vanilla mainstreamed flattened out representations are going to get um you know and and quantitatively oddly quantitatively it's really not that different across the media qualitatively it is but quantitatively um female characters star in about 15 percent of superhero comics as of this year and about the same percentage are written or drawn by a female creator women are starring in about 16% of superhero TV shows that are on air in development and about 18% of films and production are in development. So, you know, mid-teens, basically. So it's all basically about the same. And obviously women are 50% of the population of Earth, so those percentages are, are quite small. And most of those women are white, cisgender, non-queer, non-disabled. So those numbers are even more unrepresentative than they at first appear. There are disruptive moments, disruptive characters within that. But yeah, I think that you have the most nuance in comics. So I'm thinking of um, Kamala, Kamala Khan and America Chavez and Moon Girl and Ironheart. Um, I should say though, there are, all, there are some scholarly pieces that talk about how a couple of those characters are 
also somewhat mainstream to make them quote unquote relatable. So I'm thinking of like Sophia Hossein and Miriam Kent have written something like that about Ms. Marvel and Mary Henderson has written something similar about Moon Girl. And you talk about this too, like does a character just have a brown face or do they have some recognizable Latino-ness? Um, and I would also point out that a lot of the new characters of color are young. And I wonder if that's because it makes them feel less threatening in some way. You know, they're, they're little girls kind of a thing, or they're, they're just teenagers. Um, but even in comics, the most prominent female characters are still white, right? If you, if you look at sales figures, you're seeing Harley Quinn, Black Widow, Wonder Woman, Captain Marvel, Supergirl, Catwoman, Batgirl, Jean Grey, Gwen Stacy, Sue Storm, Jessica Jones. Except for Harley and Jessica, most of these are decades old, which might have something to do with their popularity. I'm sure their whiteness does as well, um, but they're from when few characters of color were being created. And I, I think on, on TV, you have um, a lot of good characters, particularly in the DC TV shows, like you have Thunder and Lightning on Black Lightning, uh, you have Dreamer on Supergirl, um, Kate Kane, Batwoman, and Quake and May and Yo-Yo on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, Legends of Tomorrow and Runaways, their ensemble casts are pretty diverse as well. It's also true that the center of most of those shows are also white. And in terms of movies, I think you find the same, like in Birds of Prey, which I expected not to like, but I really did like it. I know each woman had a distinctive personality and the main cast was diverse, although it did center Harley. The X-Men movies, I think, are more indicative of what you tend to see, which is that they have women, they have women of color, but they really marginalize those women. And it's particularly annoying with the X-Men because of some of those films are adapted from comics that clearly star female characters. Um, and, and of course, um, you know, Catwoman is just a truly terrible movie, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, so I think that, and I say this in my new book, but what I think is that we have to celebrate these more nuanced representations of these increasingly diverse central characters, but we really can't lose sight of how their difference is being flattened and commodified by privileged people at profit-oriented big companies. And I, I want to be able to celebrate that growing inclusion, but both qualitatively and quantitatively, there's just so much more work to do not just in the superhero genre, but in multiple institutions in our world to get real equity in those places. Um, but yes, I do think in general, in print, you have more nuanced representations and then the more money that's being spent, the less uh, authentic they get. Right, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, even on sort of kind of scaling up a little bit to TV, you know, the mm -hmm. is kind of taking some risks uh quote unquote and you but you see sort of some more innovation really happening in like the webisodes right yeah. streaming platform air spaces um but yeah no definitely um so you know what what would we do with um you know what do we do with i don't know um um the Kane character today and um, I don't know, um, you know, Captain Marvel, Miss Marvel, right? Um, how, how, why, okay, so let me ask this question and it's sort of here on the slide. Like we know that representation matters, but representation, um, you know, in, a, in an interesting way with texture, richness, complexity, and with broad spectrums. Um, so, is there something else I should be thinking about here? 
I'm not sure what you mean because I think that I think that what you just said is really the key to it that it there that you just they have to be rich and nuanced and authentic and really show a spectrum of humanity and I think a big part of that is who's behind the scenes um, you can't necessarily just hire one woman one white woman and one man of color to a room of 20 other people and stir and expect to get <laughs> an authentic representation of humanity, you know? So you have to have more diversity behind the scenes, I think. Does that mean, and sometimes people hear me as saying, but what about, or, or they ask me, but what about Greg Rucka? He writes great characters. Yes, he does. And so do many other uh, white male non-queer writers who have written characters totally unlike themselves over the years. I can name them too. I can. I can count them off. It's just that when you look back 80 years, you see that frankly, most people in those in that demographic group who was writing their own and everybody else's stories wasn't doing such a great job at writing everybody else's stories, you know? Mm -hmm. So this is not about a zero sum game of fire the white guys and hire um, unqualified diverse people to replace them just because of demographics. It's about saying maybe there are ways within the comics industry to, let's say, take blind submissions, not just go with who you know and who you want to mentor who happens to look very much like you. I mean, studies show that people tend to mentor people who remind them of themselves at younger ages. So maybe if they took blind submissions, maybe if they reached out more to have these kind of writers um, recruitment camps that they've, they've been trying to do, um, if they hired people not just based on who they know, I think that you would have uh, a more equitable distribution of creative people because it would be more based on merit, not based on who you know. So absolutely amazing. Um, and thank you for adding that amazing kind of depth that's so necessary, which is it's not just what's in front of us or in front of the camera or on the page, but it's also opening access for you know, writers of all, all, all types, all shades, all colors, all, all sexualities, all orientations, etc. Um, so, gosh, you're we've kind of opened with you talk, uh, you know, talking about you in a particularly uh, wonderful space there at your university to teach comics and media. What's the you know Carolyn Coca sort of trademark of bringing comics into the classroom? Well. I haven't taught comics in the classroom very much, honestly. So um, I've only really done it a little bit here and there to sort of underscore a point that I was making in kind of a regular, one of my regular classes, like politics and gender and sexuality, or I, and I have another class called people power and politics and things like that. I have just created a class called the politics of comics. Like I said, my colleagues encouraged me to do it. Um, and I haven't taught it yet, but the idea is that it'll explore kind of the nuts and bolts of how they're produced and by whom, as well as the text themselves and how they're received. So um, it'll have fiction and nonfiction and various genres of fiction. And so it will be, you know, I'm a political scientist, so it's a politics class. So the kinds of topics will be immigration, religion, sex discrimination and feminist movements racial and ethnic discrimination and civil rights movements, war and trauma and post-traumatic stress, um, 
disability and monstrousness, class and privilege and vigilantism, um, sexuality and gender and LGBTQ movements, uh, adolescence and identity. So each week they'd have a scholarly piece or two um, or excerpts of them to read and then some selected comics and then I'd show some clips of TV or movie adaptations. The class is meant to be a class that works within my major, but I also created it to fulfill requirements of my college's quote unquote liberal education curriculum or some places call it a core curriculum. So it also covers this um, area of creativity in the arts and, and this other area we have called diversity in the United States. So it means I would teach them about um, the conventions of comics and an appreciation of the art form and its multiplicity of creative voices and also, of course, the ways in which some comics have perpetuated inequalities through stereotyping and erasure. Um, and I would lean heavily on how representation matters and get students to see the power of their own voices, which frankly is what all my classes are geared toward, um, to show them how creating sequential art themselves with that, that they can represent themselves in their uh, issues of concern in their communities. And uh, of course, I wouldn't just lecture all, all this at them. I would do some fun group work and have them do presentations, uh, you know, uh, not only about, you know, sort of critical work, analyzing comics we've talked about, but also uh, I would encourage them to produce their own work that kind of challenges um, inequalities they encounter in their everyday lives. So that's what I'm planning to do. Um, and I should be doing that next year. Wow, I <laughs> I can't wait for that class. I want to sign up for it. I'm imagining that you're going to have a, a wait list from here to tomorrow for that one. That's going to be amazing. Um, I, I hope so. I mean, I think it should be fun. And I think that with the variety of topics and styles that I'll cover, I can manage to have something for everybody. Um, so let's hear a little bit about your new work. Um, on Wonder Woman, Captain Marvel, and comics and film, militarism, feminism, diversity in the superhero genre. I know I heard a little bit in Santa Barbara, but of course, you know, I, I want to hear more. Yeah, I think I probably should shorten the title. <laughs> it is a little unwieldy. So maybe something like Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel, colon, militarism and feminism in comics and film. Maybe that would get to it. But the, the idea is that it examines those two characters as being simultaneously feminist and military women and exploring how their militarism kind of works both with and against their feminism. So in other words, their portrayals center them and their diverse allies as they protect marginalized people. And that's, of course, the fulfillment of a feminist goal. It's a great advance from the previous underrepresentation of these groups. But these same portrayals also naturalize military violence. And they tend to reinscribe multiple inequities within military institutions, within multiple other institutions in the United States and internationally, which is not so progressive and feminist. But of course, in combination, this makes them very appealing and marketable across the political spectrum because these two white female characters, decades long military affiliations can ease anxieties about their being feminist superwomen for their more conservative fans and their being feminist superwomen can kind of ease anxieties about their military affiliations for the more progressive fans. Right. So there's there's a little something for everybody there and how their military attachments work for kind of with and against their feminism also brings up issues about the diversification of the superhero genre. So I can talk about the two things in parallel ways. So like, what does it mean when diversity 
is um, quantitatively and qualitatively just more at the margins and not at higher levels in an institution, whether that's in the military or in comics production. Is that a good start or is it just kind of individualized tokenism that undercuts uh, more collective organizing for more structural change? Um, and uh, it brings up how it feels really good to root for this strong female superhero soldier who's fighting injustice and protecting vulnerable black and brown and green and blue people. But it also means we're rooting for a privileged white woman to make war when we know that people of color, which of course includes women of color, tend to suffer the most violence and war all over the world. So are these stories like progressive diversity to be celebrated or are they kind of just recentering whiteness and imperialism? Um, I think it's all of that. And so I try to get at this in, uh, you know, in an intersectional and interdisciplinary way. So I kind of use um, political science and political economy and multiple feminist theories, critical race, post-colonial disability theories and queer theory. And it focuses, it don't, I mean, it, re it references their histories, their long histories, but it focuses on their post relaunch comics from 2011 and 2012 to last month, basically. Oh no, it's May, to March, 2020. Um, and their billion dollar films. So um, it's divided into three parts and it, it looks at their representations in text, but also some paratextual material from the parent companies and the film actors and their real life work with the US and Israeli militaries. So first it analyzes portrayals of military violence itself in the comics and films and the ways in which they can be classified as militainment, you know, like they kind of glorify and normalize military and everyday life and how this militainment might be both produced sorry, and received differently when it's employed by a female as opposed to um, a male protagonist. Then the second part looks at their military service and it particularly focuses on these. Um, a lot of military stories have this individual self-empowerment theme. So there's quite a bit of that along with a real focus on their kind of diverse tight unit. And that's where I talk more about sort of increasing diversity in institutions. And then the third part looks at how their enemy leaders, terrorists, armies, whatever, are generally othered in ways that are meant to reduce sympathy for them. But at the same time, very often the, there are populations that are vulnerable and often refugees, and they get othered as well, even as they're being protected by the superheroes. So what I kind of come to at the end is that these representations can be read as, as being liberatory, you know, because they're inclusive and they're nuanced and they emphasize the strength of marginalized groups, but they're also at the same time kind of very individualized, which makes them neoliberal and post-feminist and post-race and kind of neoconservative because it focuses on their violence against these othered enemies and on these kind of white savior tropes in ways that mask a bunch of inequalities. So um, even though that sounded like a long description, it's actually a short book. It's part of a new series of short books. They're only around 100 pages each. And the cool thing about that is that in ebook form, um, they're only like 15 bucks. So they're like $15 with the ebook and they have color illustrations. There's a hardcover too, which your library can order, but you know, regular people should get the ebook. <laughs> and it, the series is at Rutledge and it's called uh, Rutledge Focus on Gender and Sexuality in Comics. It's edited by Frederick Kohler. Send him a, a description uh, and proposal if you want to. I think it would work well in a number of classes. And 
um, then you obviously feel free to contact me, anyone, if uh, you want to know more about it. But it was basically uh, like everything else that that you asked me about at the beginning, you know, it's another way of, of trying to look at, analyze, uh, debate about the many inequalities around us and what we can do to try to, to deal with those inequalities best. Yeah, I can't wait. Is that the, a 2020? I think so. Yeah, August. So yeah. it should be out in August. It didn't get, well, it hasn't gotten that delayed yet. I okay. mean, it got delayed from July 1st to August 1st but they assure me it will be ready for fall classes because that was really my concern. Yeah. Um, in case people wanted it for that. Yeah. Um, I, I cannot wait for that, Carolyn. And I can't wait for all of the n new future work that you will be doing and bringing to us as comic scholars. Gosh, thank you so much. You have like my, my brain is like enriched and enlarged from your conversation with me. Thank you, Carolyn, for joining me today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Happy to do it.